Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mike Wilson, a Toronto Maple Leafs historian and the de facto leader of Leafs Nation. ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, named him the ultimate Leafs fan for his diligent collection of Leafs memorabilia amassed over a 55-year period, which is considered the greatest collection of memorabilia outside of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mike is the author of Inside the Room with the Ultimate Leafs Fan and The Ultimate Road Trip, documenting his year-long commitment to attend in person all 89 regular season and playoff games during the 2018-2019 season. Mike is also the host of an excellent podcast of his own, Squid and the Ultimate Leafs Fan, which is co-hosted by Leafs legend and former captain Rick Squid Vive. And last but not least, Mike is also a certified sports memorabilia appraiser and today runs the ultimate sports appraiser, which is clearly, as we say, on brand. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm doing great. Well, first off, Andrew, thanks very much for that uh, glowing introduction. Man, oh man, I'll send you, I I owe Mike a hundred bucks and I think I owe you a hundred (laughs) dollars for after that. Uh, I'm sitting here in Toronto, my office, and uh, just uh, you know, working. Actually, I'm working on our show tonight that uh, we have. So, uh, just doing my usual leaf stuff. Fantastic, fantastic. Let's get right to the question on everyone's mind: post-trade deadline, mm-hmm. after 55 painful campaigns, is this the year? Mark Giordano and Colin Blackwell are in. Travis Dermott is out. Very significantly and publicly, Kyle Dubas missed out on getting Marc-Andre Fleury from Chicago. And thus in net, we're committed to some crazy combination of possibly injured Jack Campbell, a puzzling Peter Mrazek, two raw rookies in Eric Kalgren and Joseph Wall. And land sakes, we may even get another sighting of Michael Hutchinson. (laughs) Mike Wilson, is this the year? Well, we always like to say every year is the year, and I never put myself on record by saying what year it's going to be because being uh, diehard Maple Leaf fans, we think every year, because anything can always happen. You never know. There's always upsets in the first round. Injuries can take place. So a lot of the chips, a lot of good things have to happen. Now, I mean, you have to be, you know, you have to win, you have to be good. And to be good, you have to be lucky. So you've got to have both of that going your way. So I, I just, the way I look at it, you just take it and it's an old cliche and I hate it, but you just got to go day by day and see how things play out. Get through New Jersey tonight, worry about Montreal on Saturday and just take it from there. And I know that's a very boring answer and you don't want to hear it, but that's all they can do from here on in. But at some point, Kyle Dubas has done a very good job as far as uncovering talent as we've seen with Bunting this year in camp and uh, Cache. But the fact is, is that the players have to be accountable at some point and the players have to step up and they know it's at stake. So let's see if they can grab it and go with it. I think Leafs Nation feels that goaltending was was the major problem that needed to be resolved and perhaps wasn't. I want your take on this. Kyle Dubas was very annoyed by Chicago's GM Kyle Davidson revealing kind of the misfire in this flurry trade. Was this perceived breaching of confidentiality uh, the real issue, or is this a distraction from the fact that uh, Dubas couldn't get this deal done? Is, honor among thieves. Is, was this a real issue or a, a red herring? 
Oh, boy, that's a good question because, you know, we weren't in the room, so we don't know what was really said. But it, it sounds like the price of poker was the two first-round picks. Uh, picks. Uh, knees was the throw-in, uh, which is, you know, the top prospects of the Maple Leafs right now. And Dubas didn't deny it, and he looked pretty annoyed when he was doing this press conference talking about it. I... You know, I would have to say there's obviously a lot of truth to that. And, you know, these managers, they're going to use one offer against another to get somebody to pay up. And he did. So whether he broke confidentiality by releasing the names, I know these guys in the past, have, you know, they always test the market by putting trades out there. And, you know, managers will talk to certain guys and certain press guys to get it into the public. But in this case, I would say there was a little bit of both. A little bit of confidentiality was breached. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, he was probably just doing his job as a GM to keep it out there. But, you know, you could see that Dubas was a little bit annoyed. Now, for you and me, Toronto is obviously our number one city. But for me, Boston is a close number two. That town wins, whether it's the Bruins, the Red Sox, the Patriots, the Celtics. I'll never forget the uh, during the coverage of one of their duck boat championship parades, there was a teenager and he held up his own homemade sign, and it said, 15 years old, 11 championship parades. Certainly not our experience here. And then I just want to contrast that with, with Tampa, Florida, which I know you're very familiar with. It's got completely the opposite market and history and fan base as compared to Toronto, yet the Lightning have won two in a row and might very well make it three. Mm-hmm. My question to you, which probably has no simple answer, why have the Maple Leafs had this ridiculously extended period of 55 years without a championship? Well, if you can answer that one, boy, I'll tell you what, Andy, you'll be the, uh, you, you, you would, they'll give you the Maple Leafs. Never mind, let you run it, they'd give them to you. I, I would say that if you take a look back into when Consmite ran the team and then was passed over to his son and Harold Ballard, I say through the Harold Ballard era, if you go back and look at some of the way the team was handled that day, it was. I mean, he, Harold was a big, lovable character, but he, but he was a terrible hockey operator. Mm-hmm. And he ran that team into the ground. And we don't, and, you know, you're not, we're not privy to everything that went on. But if you just go back and study the stuff that was happening back in the 70s, late 70s, and then in the 80s, we bring it back to Puck, Punch him like that set that organization back so far. And then when you had the ownership of Steve Stavros, who just didn't have, he shouldn't have been running that hockey club. So if you take a look at the upper management I was on Bay Street for 40 years, and any company you ever analyze to purchase or buy or invest in, the first thing you look at is upper management. And if you start right there with the Toronto Maple Leafs, this organization, when they were winning, they had strong leadership at the top under Con Smythe. And you see after that, when things started faltering, you can point the finger right there. Not making excuses, because but if you take a look at that from when he took over the Ballard era, then to Steve Stavros, it's no coincidence since you've had two big corporations step in that things have turned somewhat. And the team is at least competitive, mm-hmm. but the fact they're not winning, listen, that's, you know, that, that, you know, at, at some point, you know, I don't know whether it's bad luck or what it is. I was thinking about this the other day because, you know, it's just our luck. You've got a team with this, the, the talent and assets they do have in this Toronto Maple Leaf club and look at the division they're in the toughest division in hockey. And then I look mm-hmm. at the blue Jays, Look what the Blue Jays have gone through for all that. I, I was thinking, do the Toronto, do the uh, sporting gods have it something against Toronto? Because both our top teams are both in two of the toughest divisions in all the sports in the world, and they can't get anything going further. So I would just say that, you know, bad management was a good start of it. 
this team is on the right track, I think. The management is on the right track. Yeah, there's a couple of moves they could have made. There's, But it, it's a very, very fine line to winning. And you can see one move or one other bad move. I mean, you know, there are some people that criticize the Traverse signing, not him as a player, certainly mm-hmm. not. He's delivered right to the T for every bit of the player he is. It's probably the money you're looking at, the $11 million. And think about, I mean, it'd be always great in hindsight. Just think, uh, take a step back. And if they, if Lamorello at the time, before Dubas took over, if he had gotten Marner and Matthews on contracts before they signed Tavares, they wouldn't have had to pay the money they paid them. The That little sequence of events right there is one little, if you can have that moment back in time, if they could do that and get those kids on contracts, maybe a couple million dollars less, think about the room they'd have. And then mm-hmm. also the pandemic coming in. You know, the new TV contract is going to add hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So the cap where it is at 81 and a half million for the next three years, or it's going to be stuck for three years at that level. Just think about if it was at 85 or 86 or 88 million dollars, where it could be or close to 90 million over the next couple of years. And the position the Maple Leafs would have been in with those guys under contract. So it's such a fine line to win, Andrew. And I'll tell you, it's a win now league. That's why on one side of me saying, you do at some point have to be prudent and protect assets, but I know I'm contradicting myself a little bit here, but maybe we could have looked back and said, maybe he should have pulled the trigger on that flurry and Hagel trade the other day and given up those first round picks. Because if you take a look at it, they only are prospects. And by the time those prospects do come through, if one of the three does work out, Matthews and Marner may not even be here anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And certainly, and I'm sure you share the sentiment, sentiment hope springs eternal we're gonna go for it day by day we're still yes. gonna go for it we're excited absolutely like, i want to go all the way back with you to where it started when and where were you born and what was your upbringing in toronto i was born in uh well in toronto i was born in st mike's actually i don't think that's why i was named michael but uh i was born in toronto i grew up in a bit my baby i was a bait beaches and i grew up in scarborough and i was there for most of my life and um i became a leaf fan i think as soon as i could start watching tv <laughs> Uh, Johnny's hamburgers or uh, John Anderson's? Hamburgers? Oh, I know that. Yeah, well, Johnny's. Uh, John Anderson's. There's one award. Actually, my one little story is that uh, I've only played two years of house league before I moved up. And my one team I played on was called Royal Donut, and used to, it was a house league team, and it was in the Colony Plaza, which is just west side of uh, Warden on Lawrence Avenue. And we used to go to a coach's house around the corner for chalk talk on Friday nights before the house league game on Saturday. And one night we couldn't, we weren't going, and we had to go to an opening of a, a, rest, a, a store. And I was mad, and I was sulking, and everything. I go, why am I not going to my child? Why am I going to this thing for him? My dad takes me in, and we're our team all standing in this donut shop. And all of a sudden, through the back door comes Tim Horton. Wow. You know? <laughs> and across the street, he opened up Tim Horton hamburgers. So I actually played for his first team that he owned was Royal Donut, and that was in Scrubbins, right beside Benny's Barber Shop. Wow. This- <laughs> Where did you go to high school? Oh, I went to Neil McNeil for a couple of years to play hockey there. Then I ended up going to Wexford, which was like a two-minute walk from my house. Okay. We fast forward. You did, as you say, you worked on Bay Street for 40 years. Yep. Uh, can you talk a little about your professional career? Well, I, uh, well, actually, I, was, I played hockey. I played hockey at Seneca. Then I played out west in the Pacific Coast League for a couple of years. I played in Europe. I came back and had a contract playing there, a contract problem, actually going back over there. And so I ended up staying here and played for the Rillia Terriers, played there a couple of years, and I ended up playing for the Berry Flyers for a year. 
And then I, after I stopped that, I was I, in between every summer I'd work on, I, I got a job working on uh, at a brokerage firm on the order desk. And it was the lowest job. I used to have to go get lunches and run around and do all that kind of stuff. And when I came back and I was sitting here and I was playing in Aurelia, I, I was working and I ended, ended up getting promoted to a guy who hired me away to go work on the buy side of the street. It's called National Trust. And I just sort of evolved from there and I stayed in the business. At one time I thought I was going to get fired. I was going to go back and play in Austria. But what happened is they fired the whole, basically fired our whole trading desk, everybody. And I was the only one left. I remember phoning, uh, you know, I phoned at home and I just said, I may be going back to Europe because I don't think this guy's going to be keeping me. I've been here like six months and I'll be, they're going to gas me for sure. And he ended up keeping me and I stayed. So I just kind of worked my way up. Um, you know, I was at my last job. I was at before I retired. Was at a place called Gervis McBurney's, which became GMP Securities. And okay, you may all know one of the founders on Dragons Den was his name is Mike Weckerly. Yes, and he's the guy who owns the Alma Combo right now. And uh, Weck and I were partners for twenty years, and uh, he was the Wayne Gretzky of Bay Street trading. Let me tell you that. Wow. Oh, uh, he is the he was the number one player on the street and he was just an absolute genius and the best guy I ever worked with. So he was very influential in my life working with him for the last 20 years. And, uh, I tried and I retired in 2016 and, you know, we, you know, over the years I built that collection that you've talked about. Uh, I've come in contact with a lot of people who have fantastic collections. Uh, I'm not the only one. Mine just happened to get a little of uh, attention because we did a lot of charity work. Uh, we're very proud of the work we did with that. And that just exploded into uh, all kinds of opportunities for us. And that's what, when eventually when I was stepping away, which led me to think about reaching out to follow the Maple Leafs for that one season, 2018-19, and just, and just talk about Leaf Nation. And then, of course, the book followed, and you know the rest that's come along with it. Well, you're being far too humble. Your, your collection is significant. Your ritual growing up was similar to mine and so many other Torontonians. Saturday night ritual, sitting down with your father to watch Hockey Night in Canada. As mm-hmm. you have noted, there was hockey, watching the Leafs, and school. That was it. Your first yep. collectible was from Carl Brewer? Well, I was, collect- I was like any kid. And, and this is the question I get asked a lot is, what is your favorite piece in the collection that I had? And, and I, I say I love it all. Every, if every piece I have, I can tell you something about it. I can tell you a story, and I tell you where I got it. Because what people have to remember is, and they always look at me, because all they want to hear is the dollar value, what thing is something worth mm-hmm. money, monetarily-wise. And I try to tell them, that you know, when I was a little kid, remember, you know, I'm 60, I'm going to be 68 this year. And when I was growing up in the late 50s and early 60s, you know, the newspapers showed up at, in the afternoon. Saturday papers showed up you know, late in the afternoon and would there be color pictures in it on Saturday and usually be a Maple Leaf colored picture in the sports page when they actually had a sports page, like with their own section, it just started doing that. The Canadian weekly magazine would come and there'd be a color photo in there of a hockey player, which I collected and you're clipping stuff out of the paper, the hockey cards, like any kid would collect. And I collect the baseball cards and like everybody, and you're, you know, put the wads of gum in your mouth. And as a result of that, what I try to tell people is that, look, I used to wait for my mom to come back from shopping with my dad and rifle through the, you know, the grocery bags and look for the slatted box of Jell-O and get her. I didn't even like Jell-O <laughs> and to open it to get the coin or to see what picture would be on the cereal box. Yeah. And if it was Montreal Canadian or a Chicago Blackhawk player or something like that, I'd be disappointed because the Maple Leaf guys were gone. And all those things, my mother has passed obviously since, 
But those memories, I will carry for the rest of my life. And that led me then to be buying, you know, getting acquiring things like Max Bentley's sweater and, you know, George Armstrong and all those type of things that along came with it after. So that's where it all, the root of it began. And my father's cousin was very good friends with Carl Brewer. And they were going to go in the monastery together. And he found out that I was, uh, you know, I was playing and I was, you know, playing pretty good, I guess, as a young, young kid. And he knew I was a big Maple Leaf fan. So he gave me a Carl Brewer game used stick signed by the team. And I had that. And that was my first real collectible. And my second piece was my father used to play, play work for IBM for 40 years. And he played in the IBM men's league Sunday mornings at Least Side Arena. And Frank Mahovitz's dad was a skate sharpener there. Mm-hmm. So I would hang around his skate sharpening booth. And, you know, just look at Mr. Mahovlich, a big man, and they had broken English. And my dad said, I used to tease him all the time about, you know, Bobby Hall was better and all this kind of stuff. And he yeah. would always be laughing back and forth. But there was a Frank Mahovlich poster that came up by Libby's Beans. That was the Dominion promotion of him stopping. And it was a big color poster. And my uncle got me two copies of that because we shopped at Loblaws. And it was the first color poster I ever had. And so my dad said, maybe we should give one of these to Mr. Mahovlich. And I said, no. And they said, well, the whole plan was to give one to Mr. Mahalovich and one for me. So mm-hmm. we drove to Lee Saturnine. I remember that Saturday. Went in, walked up to his booth, and I the rolled up poster. I handed it to him. He leaned over. He knew who I was from hanging around the rink. And he patted me on the head. He said, thank you. Turned around, and he hung that in his booth. And it stayed there till the day he retired. And fast forward, I guess, 50 years. And Frank Mahalovich visited the basement a number of years ago. And I showed him that poster and I showed him that the ad I had, I had, I had a box of the posters and the, 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 the advertisement ad I'd found over the years. And I showed that, I told him that story and he goes, I have pictures with my dad with that picture in the background of his booth. And Frank was welling up as he was thinking about his dad and I was telling him that story. So that, that's the full circle of collecting and that, that's, that's the memories you won't forget. Well, that's, a, that's a, uh, so emotional. And I want to just, build on that because you said something very interesting about your memorabilia. It's not the rarity value of an item, but rather the emotional connection and the memories. I can still vividly see my hero dad somehow catching a puck that flipped over the glass almost 50 years ago. Now a puck is a puck, albeit a puck from an NHL game, but why is this puck so much more important to me than, for example, seeing the left elbow pad that player X wore when he scored goal number 500. No, you're right. Because, because the fact is, because you were there, it's a moment, it's a moment captured with you and your father and you'll, you, you'll envision that for the rest of your life. And I remember when I was eight or nine, I got a, we got a tour of the gardens. My dad took me down. So we did the whole tour and, you know, I saw where they, they were playing the Beatles and when the Stones played where they got dressed and they played there and this kind of stuff. And um, all I wanted to see was the dressing room. Mm-hmm. And I went into the dressing room and all, and all, the first thing I saw, and Frank Mahovic and Dave Cameron, my two favorite players, but the first sweater I saw was, was George Armstrong's. Okay. And I beelined right over to that to stand in front of him. And there was guards in there. And I went to go touch it. And he went, go ahead. And he said, it's silk, which it's not. But... <laughs> They're made of silk anywhere. And, and so I looked at that sweater and I walked down. I'll never forget that. But here's the thing. When I used to go to the games, we'd stand outside of that dress. My dad would get tickets a couple of times a year. We'd stand outside the dressing room. And there'd be a rope in front of it, the guards. Cause remember both teams came out the same side in those days. Okay. And I'd watch that door fly open. 
And then Johnny Bauer would step out and they'd walk in and I just, my mouth would probably be, if I didn't have a jawbone, my, it would have been hanging on the ground <laughs> watching those guys come through the door and walk onto the ice. Well, little did I know that 50 years later, that very door would be in my basement. And also that sweat, very sweater that I touched and looked at, I'd have that one day. So those memories are things that I would just carry to my grave. And because uh, uh, I was standing with my dad in both cases and you'll never, I'll never, ever, ever forget that. That's fantastic. This is, you started as a fan very clearly, but uh, around 2006, you turned into an icon. I'm calling you a Toronto legend. When you completed your basement shrine, which you have talked about, it's called simply The Room. Yes. It featured two actual turnstiles from Maple Leaf Gardens, the mm-hmm. actual dressing room door, as you mentioned, not to mention, of course, a bar, home theater seating, four TVs for watching the game. This was the original man cave for the benefit of all our listeners. How the heck did you get your wife, Deb, to approve this? Well, you got to remember, I, I, you know, I've been cooked my whole life and, you know, I had a couple of variations. I always had stuff in my room, wherever I was. And it's funny when I was playing hockey, I would collect stuff and I'd hang stuff up and guys would be looking at me on the team. Like, how old are you? Like 10, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, you know, come on, leave me alone. You guys, I'd hang the odd poster up here and there, just something in the kitchen. It's like, Oh, it's a hockey house. And I'm living with a couple of guys and, you know, they always be making fun of me. So I always kind of did this on the QT just to keep it quiet because it's really funny because I was on Bay street. I tried to keep it sort of low key because I thought, you know, Bay street, you're supposed to have an image of being, you know, sophisticated, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and all this sort of being uppity uppity guy and all that. And it's all nonsense really. But, uh, you know, and I found out that there was a couple of very well-to-do guys on Bay street who were big baseball collectors and other guys, hockey collector. I thought, Oh, well, you know, so it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. So as we moved along, I wanted to have one final place where I could actually design, have everything and do it properly. And so after many, many years of collecting, and I just didn't do this overnight, we spent time and I finally, we, when we settled on our final home, we got that and we decided to design the basement. So we brought it in, we did it right. And she's been a collector her whole life too, because she, her and I collect rock music together, rock and roll stuff, posters. And her father was part of music world. So she's always been a collector herself. So that's why we kind of uh, associated together. And we kind of, we have that in common. So she got it and she understood where I was coming from and what I wanted to do. So we designed this room and all I really wanted to do is have a place where I, I would have it on display. Mm-hmm. And if I couldn't look at it, I didn't want to own it anymore because why well, I didn't want to, I don't want things stuffed in boxes. The idea is to enjoy the pieces. And the idea we took from it was somebody came down and saw it. And all I really want to do is have a basement with the screen TVs and bar and have buddies over, watch games and drink beer. And mm-hmm. that's it. And leave it at that. And somebody suggested we do something for charity. I said, no, I mean, who want to come here? Nobody want to pay for this. Mm-hmm. And now nah, I know maybe you should tag, you know, they're doing these type of things and they go to people's homes and they talked about all that and said, well, uh, yeah, I don't know. So we had a long, long, long talk about it. I said, well, okay, maybe we'll do it because they're talking about bringing this group in that went around and raised money and they had dinners and they raised all this money for these charities and ours would just be a different venue. That never came to fruition. But what happened was somebody must have sent a picture out or something on social media because the next thing you know, we got a call from the Leafs TV saying, we hear you have this room. Could we come and look at it? We'd like to maybe do a special on it. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, let me think about that. Because, you know, once you're out there, you're out there. Mm-hmm. 
And so Deb and I had this long talk about it. And he said, eh, you know what? It's going to get out there anyway. Why not? So we let them come over, did this. They were going to do one part special. They did two. And then the next thing, it just went from there. Then people started calling, can we come over? Can we do this? And then the charity thing just started. We said, well, let's, if we're going to have people over, let's, let's do it for a cause. So we started doing it for fundraisers. We would have, the, whatever the group was, they'd have to come over, pitch Deb and I. They'd have to show us where every dime was going. And we would have to, and then what we did to make us, we wouldn't say no to people was there had to be a Toronto Maple Leaf involved. Okay. And that way we could keep it Toronto centric and we could keep that focus on it. We wouldn't disappoint people. So we had groups come over and we started raising money and we've raised over a couple million dollars at our house. Uh, we've, and it's not us, it's because of the hockey world. All I did was open a door. Deb did all the work and all these other people did so much. And the hockey world was so great. We never paid one player to come. We kept our expenses to less than 10%. And if I spent, if I even spent a dime, I'd be angry. <laughs> it's so funny mm-hmm. because I said, and we made sure every penny went to every charity and we would, you know, it would cost us a little bit occasionally because we pay for the cleanup and stuff like that. But it was so great to have the hockey world help us out like that. And they were just so phenomenal. There's nothing like it. The, the, the players, like guys like Brian Burke, Brendan Shanahan, Wayne Gretzky, Bobby Orr, you name it, Phil Esposito, we've had this plethora of players come over to our place and help. And these guys never said no. As a matter of fact, Wayne Gretzky, and I know he'll be mad if he hears this, but he walked in and donated $10,000 to one charity we had mm. for LBGTQ. And then he actually offered a, a golf day with him and Dustin Johnson. Can you imagine that? Well, And uh, I mean, this is the type of people that Bobby or he brought Derek Sanderson with him one time and Sanderson's there another time. But we, we, these guys just were so awesome. And all I did was open the door and let people in. And it was, so it's worked out phenomenal for us and our place. It just sort of exploded from there and, but there is so many people out there. And the Leaf Nation, the Leaf, ultimate Leaf thing came from ESPN. They called and they, they gave me that name. But when we wanted to go out and do these things and, and brand ourselves, I didn't really want to use that name. because I thought it was a kind of arrogant for me to call myself mm. the ultimate Leafs fan. Because there are mm-hmm. so many Leaf fans. There's tons. And there's lots of people with massive collections that are really good. I saw a real good one two weeks ago. It's phenomenal. Mm. And, you know, I just thought we had a long talk about that. And I, but we decided, man, it's a catchy name. Let's keep it. And, but I, I have to keep explaining to people because some people do get upset with me sometimes. How can you call yourself the ultimate least fan? I, I said, was going to well, ask you, has anyone I, disputed that? Oh yeah, they do. And I, I, and I explained to them, no, I'm not the ultimate least fan. <laughs> call me that. I'm just using it for the branding. I, I, yeah. you know, I'm not. There's tons of people out there that are just as passionate, more passionate than me, believe me. And it's, uh, <laughs> It's one of those things that, you know, we just ran with it and it helped. And it was good because it got us on the, the pages for when we wanted to do fundraising, it would pop up all the time. So we, we've really run with it that way. Well, not that you need my verification, but I'm telling you, the reason you are the ultimate Leafs fan is exactly what you just talked about, because you have shared all of this with Leafs Nation. Now, in 2017, as you noted, you retired in 2016 and you downsized. And when you did that in 2017, you sold a significant portion of your 2000 piece collection yes. to the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa. Yes. How and why did you choose to sell to this particular institution? Well, that's, that's a good question again to Andrew, because what happened was we decided, you know, there's Deb and I living in the house because the kids were, you got to remember when we had this collection, we couldn't go anywhere without somebody being in the house. We had, you know, alarm systems everywhere and cameras, 
We, if we went away for a weekend, somebody would come and house sit. There was always somebody at our house. And, you know, the kids were getting on and moving up themselves. So eventually we decided we had to move on. So we thought at some point, and I'm getting older and stuff like that, we've got to do something with the collection. So we talked to the Leafs. The funny part about it is I, I think if it had been, if Brian Burke had been in charge, it would have been done with the Maple Leafs to have a museum there. And that was mm-hmm. one of the roads we went down. Berkey wasn't there. And then what happened was when Tim Lewicki was there, Tim Lewicki was going to get involved and he left. Okay. And when Brandon was going through the transition, I think if it had been later on, we actually got involved with lawyers and everything with the Leafs. So let me talk to a couple of corporations, a couple of banks about taking it as a traveling uh, tour. And then we got contacted by the Canadian Museum of History in Ottawa about lending a couple of pieces to a hockey exhibit for the 100 years of the NHL. Okay. So, the girls said, oh, I thought, well, and, and the funny part about it is they'd contact us before, we have this Beatles poster from Maple Leaf Gardens, and they wanted to borrow that for another exhibit. Okay. And then one month, so we said, okay, well, how did they find out? But then we found somebody taking a picture and put it online. Then we get contacted about the hockey. We thought, is this a scam? So Deb checked it out, found out it was real. We got talking to people in Ottawa. So the curator came over to look at a few pieces, which she took a look around the room, and she said, oh, my. God, we need more than a few pieces. And so she's looking, I'll never forget, she was looking at, we had this Wayne Gretzky display, and she was looking at that, and she was saying, what in the world are you ever going to do with this when you retire, you go? So it's funny you mentioned that. We're in the process now of talking to some people. We've talked to some corporations, some banks, the Leafs, and uh, a few other people like that. She goes, well, what about us? Mm -hmm. And I said, "Uh, oh, I, I don't know. And then the next thing, you know, about a couple of days later, they, she said, we'd be very interested. And then the next thing, you know, they called and the process took about four years. Wow. And they came through. We talked to the Hockey Hall of Fame and the Hockey Hall of Fame. Here was the thing. The Hockey Hall of Fame is internationally known and covers hockey internationally, as we know. They do a phenomenal job. They had lots and lots of talks to them. They got lots of friends there. They're very aware of the collection, but they couldn't guarantee that it would be on display full time or for any time at all. Mm-hmm. whereas the Canadian Museum of History, what I wanted to do and where they sold me on the idea was that, and this was a lot of my thoughts too, is I want this used as kind of a base to build off, to promote and talk about. I want, like you're the Smithsonian of Canadian museums. Mm-hmm. So what I want is this to use this as a base to attract other collections from around Canada and to you know, expose the game of hockey from its grassroots, not just the seven NHL teams, but through the, you know, the Colored League in, in Nova Scotia back in the 1800s to the 1925, uh, the, you know, Indigenous side, the uh, women's game, uh, kids' games, like everywhere across Canada, our game and promote it and have this all combined and use this as kind of a benchmark to start it or, you know, use and build off of that because maybe there's somebody sitting in Alaska or the North, Yukon somewhere that has a trunk full of stuff they don't know what to do that from the Ottawa Senators or from some team or whatever from 1800 mm-hmm. or 1900 or something. And they don't know what to do with it. And this will open the door for people to come and bring this and build this massive, you know, awareness of our game. Yeah. And they like that promotion. And they said, that's what I want. I want. I wanted to promote the game of hockey in Canada as a whole and use this as kind of the starting point for it. And they love that idea. And they're using that as a, we're still waiting to see if it'll get on display because they need money, obviously, but that is the plan. Now, I want to, if I can paraphrase, when you sold these pieces, whatever couldn't be valued is what you kept. And by definition to me, these pieces that couldn't be valued and you kept 
would be the most interesting and the most unique pieces. Would that be the case? Uh, somewhat, but well, see, there's because because there were so many pieces involved. There's thousands. I mean, everybody says twenty five hundred, but I just said twenty five hundred because somebody said it one day and go, yeah. I mean, there's probably you know five thousand pieces wow. or whatever. But, but I mean, I, I don't know. I'm guessing. And uh, I mean, I had that many programs alone. But uh, the idea was is that if you you when you do an appraiser, and that's the new world I'm in now. Mm-hmm. When you're doing appraisers, you have to have comparatives. And if there isn't comparatives for the items, then you have to do the next best thing. So a lot of the items are one of a kind. So there was tough putting valuations on a lot of the stuff. So if I didn't agree with the price on some of the things, I just kept it. So that that's kind of where we went. Plus there was a cutoff date where they, would, they wouldn't take any more items because they had to get approved by CERB, which is the next organization to give it historical significance and stuff. Okay. So that to get through that, there were some things didn't make it. So a lot of the contracts I have, which are very rare, uh, I've kept those. The Stanley Cup banner I acquired after the fact, that's that's an iconic piece. And there's, there, I kept about 25%, which I am looking at. I'm sitting around my room right now. Fabulous. I, well, this, it, I guess it's kind of obvious, but please talk to us about your pivot into the ultimate sports appraiser, your pivot into the world of appraisals and collectible consulting. Well, at, when, when we started to get a little of, you know, notoriety out there and a little bit of publicity about being doing our fundraising, people were starting to send me, I, I get emails fairly regular, a few a week from people asking me questions about items, uh, offering me things, trying to ask me what they should pay for it and so on and so forth. So over the time, you know, when I was looking for a new direction going, actually the thing that pushed me over the top was there was a guy in Bay Street I helped with, he had a small card collection and he wanted no value on it because he wanted to donate it to a charity. Okay. So, I said, okay. So I did, I spent a lot of time working on it for him for nothing. And then I gained the value. It was, they, they weren't very, very, worth very much. And he got mad. Mm. And I remember saying to Deb, I said, the guy, he's pissed at me. And, you know, I, I did that for nothing. And I said, you know, and I'm, at least when I was on Bay Street, if I did, I get yelled up by clients, I was getting paid for it. <laughs> and <clears throat> um, so what I, excuse me. And I said, um, you know, if he's going to yell at me, like, please pay me. Yeah, so I, yeah. she says, well, here, you should be taking, a, you should be certified anyway and get yourself a course. So we looked up. I took the course. It was a Canadian version. I, it was over a four-day period. I passed it. And now we're moving on. I, I don't know what I'm talking about with NFTs. And I hope you have an opinion on this non-fungible, non-fungible tokens. Yeah. Is this the next significant asset class for collectibles or is this a scam? Well, <clears throat> um, excuse me. I, I'm not a real big believer in all that stuff, but you know what? You can't, you got to move for, and the same as I'm a big fan of these sweaters, leaves are wearing tonight. You know, yeah. I, you know, I, you can't, it's a new generation. It's the way it is. It's like Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. These NFTs, I guess it's a way to share. I mean, my own view is when I saw these guys selling these little film clips, mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, all I got to do is go on YouTube and pull the game up and clip it out yourself. <laughs> You know, what, where's the value in that? And, uh, I, you know, I mean, I've been approached by a couple of guys to get involved in doing a couple of things like that. And I I, I guess so, but I, I still have to be sold on it. I just don't see how this can carry forward. But I guess it's the new generation and what they're looking for. I had a guy approach me about five or six years ago about the hockey cards trading that way. Mm-hmm. I said, come on. 
you can't be doing this. Hockey cards are going to the store, buying a pack, ripping open the package, eating the gum, yep. throwing them against the wall. That's hockey cards. Not, yep. not buying a computerized, perfect-looking picture and trading with the guy. And you know that's not the idea. And you don't even meet, you don't even meet the person. Yep. I remember you know going to the schoolyard and giving away all my Bobby Orr and or, or Bobby Hall and uh, Gordy Howe cards because they weren't Maple Leafs. Yeah, <laughs> or they ended up in high school. <laughs> Or they ended up yeah. in a bicycle spokes. Yeah, I, you know, so I mean, NFTs, that's the new way of the world. And, you know, what are we going to do? We've got to go along with it. But I, I like Bitcoin, I don't understand. It. And I talk to a lot of Bay Street guys who don't understand Bitcoin either. So wow. I don't know how you can have something like that with no physical asset behind it except a computer program. It makes well, no sense to me. I feel better hearing from you because I don't get it either. Let's <laughs> talk about the ultimate road trip. As I noted, you attended in person all 89 games that the Leafs played in 2018-2019. And then you documented this experience in a book, The Ultimate Road Trip. This sounds like a dream to anybody who loves the Leafs, except this was really a full-time job for you. Oh, it was. It was. Well, again, because I was, you know, Andrew, all these people are reaching out to me all the time, telling me their stories and telling about their collections and stuff like that. And I was getting them from everywhere across Canada and across North America all the time. And, you know, it just people like to reach out and talk. And I thought, what better way, you know, the way I looked at it was, you know, the early part of my life collecting was collecting the items because you're passionate about, you want it. You know, the second part of my life was, you know, finding out what they mean. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what, because I like to think every piece has a tentacle and the tentacles off the piece produce different type stories. And then the third part of my life as a collector was sharing these ideas with people. So I thought, you know, sharing the ideas with the people, I want to hear what they've got to say, like on top of what I've passed on to them, what I've learned over all these years. And the only way to do that is to go and talk to them. And the way, to, the way that is, is just go to each city. I mean, on emails isn't good. I want to see it firsthand because you always heard about players coming here and they go on the road and they see all the blue and white sweaters in the stands and people cheering for them. And, you know, the Blue Jays had that too. And I thought, no, I, th- there's got to be something to this. Mm-hmm. So I talked about it. And, and there was a guy who, who – I'm a Notre Dame football fan. Okay. I met a guy there who, retired, who, who graduated in 1977, and he has not missed a game since. Wow. Wow. He goes to every game he plans. Every now, there's only they only play eleven, twelve games, and yep. you know, sometimes eight of them are at home, or you know, and so it's not. And he lives in Notre Dame, but he still plans it every year, and he's gone mm-hmm. to every. It was like four hundred, and I thought I should do that with the Leafs. And so I talked to Deb about it, and she said, you know, what a great retirement, pa- uh, you know, package that would be to do, or, or promotion, or project to do. So anyway, we talked about it in March of eighteen. We're walking in Florida, member, and I said, you know what? I think I should do that this year. Why not? And she said, yeah, you know what? I thought she was giving me a little pushback. Say, yeah, I'd do it next year. Let's, let's wait a year. And I thought, she goes, no, let's. We went back to the uh, condo, mm-hmm. started looking up. This guy called, uh, you know, one of the guys I knew at the Star Sun and said, when's the schedule out? June 23rd. All right. So we started looking around and started making some plans. I started, well, if I go to this city, I know this person here and here. And I said, we're not going to make this a Gucci trip. Like, let's make this a real fans trip like I am. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I want to do it as cheap as I can. I'm going to sit in the top, like the real fans. I want to sit with the guys in the, you know, in the Gucci seats. We want to be with the P- real, real fans. So I started reaching out to people I knew. Yeah, yeah, you can stay with me. You can stay here. So then when the schedule came out 20, the 23rd of June, 
we got on it and Deb got on with the um, travel agent. We made friends with the travel agent that they waived the fee to charge us for our, uh, you know, flights. They worked, they must've worked for four days booking (laughs) these flights. And I mean, Debbie was on the phone with them for probably two, three hours at a crack, booked everything. Then we booked the trains. Then we booked, uh, I thought I'll drive to this one. And we laid it all out. Then she would try to do a deal with the hotel. We used the Marriott and we went through, every place to find the cheapest place to stay. Then I worked out with tickets. And one of the guys I buy a lot of tickets from in the States, Dub Depot, my buddy, Phil Moore, we called him and said, Phil, give me a deal on tickets for the year. And he goes, what are you doing? I said this. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a ticket for every game. One ticket on the house on me. Hmm. And he said, anything over a hundred bucks, I'll have to charge you. I said, deal. Wow, and, uh, and and so if I brought somebody or something like that, and we had to buy, a, I'd give him a little bit. But he didn't charge me the whole year because he wanted to be. And we so we helped give him a little promotion. And I, plus we bought a lot of tickets off, and a lot of guys that use this guy, and he's just fantastic. So mm-hmm. stuff people, and um, the uh, so then I went to the lease and said I told him what I wanted to do, and they thought it was a great idea. And I said I need a ticket, so give me a ticket in the three hundred somewhere. So they gave me one seat in the in the hundreds. It was three eighteen <laughs> row five seat eleven, and I sat there almost every game. And people took me to games and stuff like that. Yeah. So then I started planning out where I was going to stay, and then it just kind of fell into place. And then of course we were away one weekend, and all of a sudden they were sitting in the middle of a lake. I remember on a boat with these friends of ours, and uh, and I'm not a boat person at all. And we're out there sitting there, and I'm sitting there drinking a beer, and all of a sudden, Deb goes, she's got the only one that can get internet. Two o'clock, I know she said, John Tavares signed. Ooh. And uh, I said, oh, there we go. It's going to make this year crazy. But everybody <laughs> said to me, you know, Mike, you know, that Tavares thing made it so much better for you to go. And I said, you know what, in a way, it's not what I wanted, although it made it great. It was fantastic. But yeah. what I really wanted, I wanted to be in Minnesota on a Monday night in the middle of January. It's 30 below outside. And there's eight guys from Thunder Bay sitting in the seats with Maple Leaf sweaters on. The Leafs are six games out of a playoff spot. And these guys are cheering like crazy. I want to go up and boys. Why? Yes. get the answer. And, yes. you know, and that's what I was looking for. Where's the passion? And I'll tell you what. It was everywhere. You found it. It was everywhere. Did, did you calculate how many arena hot dogs you ate that year? None. I, well, actually, maybe two. I never <laughs> ate. I didn't drink one beer. Playing because I didn't drink any. I didn't drink because I was talking to families and talking to kids. And I didn't want booze in my breath in case something ever happened. Or there was, yeah. a conflict, there was a confrontation or something. Or somebody got mad because I was bugging them or something. Um, I couldn't eat because if I was eating... Um, <clears throat> if I was eating, I, I'd have my hands full. And I, if I saw somebody I had to talk to, I'd, I'd have to throw it away because I had to take, but I'm not very, I can't take pictures. I, yeah. took, or I took a course on how to use a camera. <laughs> and to show you how bad I was, when I went into the first day to uh, the place downtown, uh, the Henry's had offered this course. The guy says, turn your cameras on. Everybody got their setting. And the guy's looking at me, you, 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 you. And then goes, Mike, I said, I don't know how to turn it on. And they all looked at me in this room like, who's this moron? Because these people were all kind of savvy with the camera. I had no clue what to do. And they showed me, and then they found what I was doing, and then they all kind of helped me out. So I'd have to take pictures, and I interviewed over 200 people uh, with video. And then I would uh, would do then as I'd pick a spot in the rank. I'd walk around. If the Leafs were winning, I'd do 
three laps around the brink pre-game warm-up. Okay. And then I would pick a spot. If they're losing, I do four. I do a, uh, <laughs> I pick a spot and Deb would announce it on Instagram. She watched every game and I would send her the spot where I'm going to be. And she'd send it on social media and people would come and meet me. Then wow. when I'd get all the pictures and all the names, I'd write them all down in a book and it was a little paddock here. It my booklet. I, during the game, I'd be forwarding her all the pictures and all the names. Then she would document them, put them in, our Google drive and then send certain pieces out to Instagram. Okay. And I'm we were doing this every game and I'd stick my hand in and watch the pregame warm up, And I I'd just see how the Leafs were looking at it. And I'd, I'd send a comment out with a little video. I take a picture of the front of the building going in and, you know, then right after the game, you know, I'd run back to the hotel and I was doing this thing for this place called post media where I do it, write a Maple Leaf report. So I'd write okay. that. And then I'd write down all what had happened throughout the day. And on the way back to the hotel, sometimes I'd grab a, a sub or a Mike submarine or one of those things, and a, and I'd eat that at the hotel, and that'd be it. Wow. And I'd get up and do it the next day again. I'd go to the morning skate, look at the Leafs, take pictures, and you know, talk to some people, fans around it, but always talking to fans. What an, an incredible experience you had. Yeah. I want, I, I want to talk about your podcast. I love it. Squid and the Ultimate Least Fan. You're now up to 85 episodes. I, I really enjoy them because you get behind the scenes. Rick Vive is your co-host. He's not only yes. a former captain, but a, a true Maple Leafs <laughs> legend. 50 goals, three times, first in franchise history. How did you start this podcast and how did you choose Rick as your co-host? Well, Squid and I have been friends for a number of years. He's done a lot of charity stuff for us. Um, Guys like him, Steve Ludzik would always just come and help anytime. And I've known Rick for a long, long time. And I played in Port Alberni. A guy I played with was Prince Everly and was good friends with him. So I knew him when he played in Vancouver. And so we go way back. And so we were talking a couple of times about, and I had him over and we I'd interview him and stuff like that. When you have fans and stuff like that, like for our charity stuff, I'd always moderate a panel and, you know, he'd be on. And so then he got talking about, it. I heard him get interviewed and said, he'd like to do something in the media again after doing Leafs TV. Mm-hmm. So I called him and said, well, why don't we do something? And he said, yeah, that sounds like an idea. So the hockey news approached us and we started working with them and doing one of the, then the, we did two shows and then the pandemic came. Oh boy. And so then we continued on with them, but the, you know, we didn't like the deal the hockey news was going to give us, uh, you know, so we, we decided to just go on our own. So we've been doing it on our, on our own and they didn't have a studio or anything. So we we're just going to, so we thought we might as well just do it ourselves. So we've been okay. doing it ourselves um, Rick is such a popular guy and he's so good at this that he, the player, we've had everybody on, like, you know, all the guys, like the players, nobody's ever refuses to come on. And everybody asks, we've had such fantastic guests and it's so easy to work with these guys because hockey players are just the best, as you know, and they, the guys share some great stories with us and we don't ambush them, mm-hmm. but and we let them tell us uh, some pretty behind the scenes stuff. And it's, it's just worked out really well. And, you know, we've had, we had Dale Talon on last week. We did a two-parter with him. So the second part is out this week. But you know, we've got some – we've had some terrific guests. I can't say enough about the guys. And, but it's all, it's all because of Rick because Rick is so popular with the guys, and they all love him. I just, I just get to talk on the radio. That's all around the, around the, the show. Well, again, you're too humble. There's, there's so many shows. There's dozens of shows, it seems, about analyzing everything with the Leafs and Corsi and this and that. I love the way you keep the, keep the ball moving ahead towards stories and experiences, everything they talk about, I can picture in my head. So uh, keep going. I really enjoy it. Oh, thanks. There was a lot of excitement in social media about you appearing on this podcast. 
Uh, noted European hockey journalist Risto Pakarainen was very excited that you would be on, and he asked me to ask you. He says in 1973, Inge Hammerstrom and Borja Salming joined the Leafs from Sweden. Yep. Yep. They were called Chicken Swedes, and Harold Ballard famously once said, Hammerstrom could go into the corner with a dozen eggs in his pocket and not break any of them. Of course, they w- both went on to fantastic careers, and the king is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Do you concur that this Swedish invasion was a significant event in the globalization or internationalization of the NHL? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Tremendous hockey players. And I can tell you that when you talked, I, when I talked to Boris Salman a few times, he said to me, the problem was with poor Inga is that he was just at the wrong time. He was the best. He said between him, Anders Hedberg, Alf Nielsen, and, uh, and like uh, Alf, or, um, uh, Inga was the best of the group by far. He was wow. the best player. But if he had come 10 years later, he would have been a superstar in the NHL. His time was just during the Broad Street bully days and the craziness and all that. But Boria was sort of the leader because Boria wiped all that nonsense out about these guys not having any guts because it's just not the way they play. And he, as a matter of fact, he told me his first game he went into Philly, he played. He Somebody ran him and he turned around and started fighting the guy. It was Dave Schultz. And when he went, oh, in, the dressing room, and when he went in the dressing room between periods, the guy said, you know you were just fought? No, who is he? That's Dave Schultz. You know, fight him. And he goes, oh, well, too late now. And yeah. you know, he was, you know, that, but, you know, he set the bar and, you know, it's, it's made the game obviously much more international and better. But the 72 Summit Series is what started, like, got the ball rolling. Yep. Well, uh, Borea Salming, I, I, if I can, uh, <laughs> you get so many of these stories, I'm sure you've had your, your fill of them. <laughs> but I'm going to just tell you briefly that Borea was my guy. And my, my two favorite collectibles are, are the jersey I had from him on my 10th birthday. Yeah. And I broke my hand playing hockey in 1999, and he happened to be in town for an alumni game, so he signed my cast. So just to what you said, it's not about the value. It was about the uh, memories. Well, I can tell you two stories about Boris Salming on my trip. One guy I met in L.A., he was a neighbor. And what happened is, uh, what would happen was they were the same age as his kids, and so when they were playing ball hockey in the street and stuff like that, Borey would come out and play with them. And one kid would luckily get to go to a game with his son on Saturday nights. And his greatest memory was going to a game with the son and Borey giving him a stick after. Mm-hmm. And he still has the stick. Yep. And the second story, I met a guy in Las Vegas. We're standing at the, there's the bar outside. I'd go in all the bars before the game and I'd drink ginger ale and walk around and talk to everybody. He told me a story about Boris Salming also, and he said, here's the story about Salming. When I lived, I lived in High Park in the Toronto area, and they had two good, or uh, what was the name of the pond? Um, Grenadier. Uh, Grenadier Pond. And it froze over and they'd skate on it. And there was a, a rink there, and, and the ice was, and, and they're sitting there skating around. All of a sudden, this car pulls up, and it's Boris Salming. He's got his kids. So he comes on the ice, and everybody's kind of looking. Boy, had the two young children. He goes, what's he going to do with these? They don't look like they're old enough to skate. So he's carrying the one in his arms. And the other one, he sat, he put his leg straight out and put it at the end of his leg. The kid sat on his child's side of the leg and hung on. And he skated around the ice, like glided around the ice with one leg in the air. Yeah. And holding the kid all the way around the ice. And he said, that's the greatest athletic move I think I've ever seen in my life. I still remember that to this today. Uh, it was Boris Salming. My head would have exploded if I had been there. That's <laughs> Mike, yeah. I want to, uh, as we get close to wrapping up here, I want to talk to you about your, you're a Torontonian, 
all the time, your two favorite things to do or eat to be at. And one of these two can be a, a more well-known one, you know, the typical go to the CN Tower or what yeah. have you. But the second one, I'm going to ask you for more of a, a hidden gem. Well, I can tell you is um, what I do is I play hockey four times a week. So that's my wow. favorite thing to do outside of uh, watching the Maple Leafs play. And uh, just on a, for a little selfish, shameless plug here, the new project I'm working on is I'm writing a book on beer league hockey. Okay. Uh, because I'm playing it for so long. And what I'm doing is I'm talking about all the characteristics of beer league hockey. You know, the guy won't come off the ice, the guy who won't pass, uh, the 11th forward. All the things that we hate, you know, the, the brutal goalie, uh, you know, the, the beer drinking, all the, and all the stories that go along with it. I've got some dandies. And what I'm doing though is I'm going to self-publish this book, and I'm going to donate all the money that's raised from the book to Ronald McDonald House and Markham Stover, which is where I play most of my hockey. Okay. So on that, so anybody, if anybody would has any beer league stories they could share with me, please send them to me because I want to put them in a book and they can be the craziest stories you can think. And I've got some beauties that I've been told. So I'm going to put this on in the process of putting it all together. But the one place that my hidden jewel that I go to is uh, one place that I, I really enjoy is I go to the Duchess of Markham in, in Markham, Ontario, which is a pub. And they de- designated the upstairs level to all the hockey players in Markham. It's a, it's a Markham hockey bar. So nice. and I'll just the Markham guys all, and you can go there any it's like cheers where everybody knows your name. <laughs> That's nice. And That's anybody nice. who plays in those Markham leagues or anywhere around there, you go in there and they know you and you can always talk hockey. There's nothing better than doing that. Excellent. That is a great one. I in addition to your beer league project, which sounds great, what are you up to, Mike, for the remainder of 22, 2022 and beyond? Well, I, well, I'm going to be. I'm working on the. I work on the podcast. I'm going to be doing the appraisal business stuff. Hopefully, got a few projects to work there. Uh, and that's the thing I want to stress to people is I, for a long time before the appraisal business, I didn't do this. And when I went to move my collection, it took forever. Anybody who has a collection out, the number one thing I can tell you to do is document every piece that you have. If you have a price you paid for it, take note. Please do that. You'll save yourself a lot of aggravation because if you need to do estate planning, if, God forbid, a divorce comes along, uh, you want to get it insured or anything, or you want to sell it, you need certified appraisals now because they're getting much more stricter on this, especially since the hobby has grown so big in all collectibles and for anything you own. So I really stress to people to do that. So I'm going to be working on that. I'm going to be working on the book, playing hockey, as I said. Uh, follow the Jays, follow the Leafs, obviously. And really, I'm trying to keep myself busy doing all that and trying to do some ultimately fan stuff here and there. We're talking about doing maybe another couple, uh, you know, charity things down the road somewhere. But, um, you know, really, I've got enough on my plate. I'm supposed to retire, and I think I'm working harder now than when I was working. <laughs> but you're enjoying yourself, clearly. I really am. I, I really fantastic. am. I really am. And all I want is Maple Leafs to win one before I go, and then they can take me. You and me. And I want to, on, on that note, I'm going to give you, I'm sure you've heard these two zingers before, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. True story from a Leaf fan's obituary. As part of my ferial, final burial wishes, he requested six Toronto Maple Leaf players to serve as his pallbearers. That way the Leafs can let him down one final time. Oh boy. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes I know. I know. I hear it. I, you know, I, I, I get sent that stuff all the time. I don't read them. Yeah. 
I don't. I take it too serious. I don't. I don't read them. I just. I. I never. People send me those jokes and that kind of stuff, and I just nah, not with them. Not with the Maple Beliefs. No. We, and listen, we, it's not like the players aren't trying. You yeah. Know? And they know it. I mean, this is a tough market to play in. There's a lot of weight put on their shoulders. I mean, I mean, just look at. You know, the Leafs make a trade for Mark Giordano. By the way, great guy. He a couple of years ago, and we had a charity event. It was really funny. I'll show you the type of guy he is, the leadership he is. So one of the guys couldn't make it at the last minute. His mother got sick. So he, and so Berkey said, um, uh, here, I got somebody. And he calls back, uh, Gio's going to show up, Mark Giordano. He lived in Oakville. was with his mm-hmm. parents. He came right out, shows up at 6 o'clock. Not a problem. But we had, that was the day we had, or, you know, Esposito, uh, you know, Vive was there, Shanahan, Berkey, uh, Dennis Murak. We had a plethora of stars again that day. And Gio comes in and, he was on the panel and it's funny. He was actually nervous being around all those guys. You could see, and he was asking mm-hmm. questions and he was just such a class act. I took him around and gave him a tour and he was just so humble and such a great, and you could just see the leadership qualities when you talk to him. So Leafs have got a real winner in him. Let me tell you. Well, I'm excited. Like you, Mike, this is it. This is going to be the year. I'm super excited. <laughs> Listen, up you're right, Andrew. I hope so too. Mike Wilson, it was really Fantastic having you. Where can we best follow or listen to or reach you? Well, uh, a couple things. You can find me at uh, at the Ultimate Leafs Fan. You can look at Squid and the Ultimate Leafs Fan. Um, you can reach me at Mike at UltimateLeafsFan.com. Boy, I like that Ultimate Leafs Fan name, don't I? Good or branding. UltimateSportsAppraiser.com. And, uh, you know, just reach out. But if they can send me stuff to Mike at UltimateLeafsFan.com, any of your beer league stories, I'd love to hear it. Any questions? And, uh, you know, and the other thing about the book I, I talk about for following Leafs for those 89 games, it's kind of a, I want to say kind of a, a, um, a, what do you call it, a formula for people to look at themselves. if yes. they want, Because I want to encourage people to do that. And, you know, I want them to do it all. And I had, <clears throat> it's really funny. I said to some kid said to me, um, you know, you must be just some rich guy flying around. And he said, you know, how can you do this? I said, hey, 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 hang on a minute how old are you? You said I was 25. And I said, well, guess what? I was 64. And I said, 64. Yeah. So 64. And he said, I got you by 40 years. Yeah. Well, tell you what, can you put a hundred dollars a week or a hundred dollars a month away a year? Uh, well, well, think about that. That's 1200 bucks. That's one less beer a week. How about that? Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, yeah, well over 40 years, guess what? That's 40 grand. And I, my trip cost about that. Yeah, I never thought of it like that, man. Yeah, well, I worked for 40 years. So when you work for 40 years, put a few bucks away to do something when you retire. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. And by the way, look where I'm sitting. I'm sitting with you. You know how much I paid for this seat? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. You know, they, and then you start thinking about it, right? And then they start. But I ran into so many people who do trips like they do the California West trip where they do the three games. Uh, they do the Western Canadian trip. They'll do a, a Pittsburgh trip. And then they'll go to um, uh, the football game the next day or a baseball game. I ran into all kinds of people. I ran into these guys who were the 123 club. These guys were nuts. They talked about me. And they're up talking. They're, they're kind of admiring me. And I said, you, me, you guys. These guys, there's 123. Now there's 124 in Seattle. 124 teams now in, in, in professional sports in North America. Okay. They went to every one of their home ranks to one game. Wow. Wow. And the one guy, and, and if you have more than one rank, that doesn't count. 
So the Leafs had two. They had Maple Leaf Gardens in Scotia. Yeah. So that's, that's still only one. Wow. And they went to everyone. And there's 15 guys in the club that have done this. And the Seattle was the new one coming in. So that would have been 124 they would have all gone to. One guy, they've run, the one guy has been to every minor league hockey and baseball park along with every national team. Yep. And now they're working on Europe. The guy's up at like 544 venues he's been to. Wow. Well, there's that always another. There's always there's another always, level of fandom. Always somebody else, right? So that was the thing I found on the trip. There's so many people. So I encourage people, if you're planning on doing I've met a number of women who are doing it themselves. They go to, they're going to one rink every year. Um, guys trying to do one rink or one or two rinks every year to get to every rink the Maple Leafs play in. So it's really cool. I mean, there's so many people that do what I did. And I, I'm just the one just voicing it up. But there's lots of people who do similar type things. Well, for my money, you clearly are the ultimate Leafs fan. I want to thank you again. I want to thank the audience for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of the ultimate Leafs fan, Mike Wilson, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.